Well, hello. Good morning. It's good to see you. Welcome, First City. My name is Rick. I'm one of the ministers here at, at uh, First City Church, along with you and our community, just trying to fulfill the call of God in our lives, right, among those who are needing joy and love and forgiveness and comfort and peace in their souls. And so I pray that, you know, God uses us in a powerful way. Next week, we will uh, be kicking off the beginning of our small group semester. The small groups actually start the next week after that, but we're going to be signing up for them uh, next Sunday. So what we'll do is we'll come in, we'll have a shortened message, we'll go downstairs, and they'll have tables all around downstairs in the coffee house with all of the names of the small groups. The leaders of those small groups will be there and sign-up sheets, and so you can read about each small group. We'll also have that online. We have a slat wall downstairs across from our uh, welcome desk, and there'll be a little piece of paper describing every one of the small groups, so you can go there if you want to get the information. Then you can sign up. It's so important. I'll talk a little bit about that in our message. So this is also our last week in the 21 days of prayer. Thank you for participating in that. Thank you. We've gotten a lot of good compliments and, co- and just comments just about all the different prayers, and we started with God, how can you strengthen me? How can you strengthen our church? And then last week about our community, what can we do in our community, Lord God, with your name attached to it so that we can do something that will bless our community. This week, it's all about our nation and our world. So here are the topics uh, for this week. Today is about government. And boy, doesn't our government really need prayer so that we can just learn to submit to the principles of Jesus Christ. All of the different media forms, arts and entertainment that for Way too hard. They just seem to want to go and push the envelope and see how far they can move away from the principles of God. Our mission fields, man, the fields are ripe unto harvest. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send forth workers. Amen? So that's our prayer. National revival. Man, we need a revival in our nation. And then the last two days, a vision for more. God, help us to get a vision for more of what you want to do in our world, more of how you're going to use us in that. And then we're going to end the last day just thanking God. Thank you for listening to our prayer. Thank you for rewarding. Thank you for heeding. Thank you for partnering with us, Lord God. Now in your name, we want to go and live for you. And so that's our week uh, as it's coming up. And, And I tell you, the enemy seeks to kill, steal, and destroy. Amen? I mean, it's like God, the enemy is just trying to take away God and remove him from our nation and from the world. Now, we knew this, and as we just read Scripture about how Satan fell and how he rebelled against God, and now everything in him wants to turn away from God. In fact, Scriptures also talk about how he wants to be God. And so, yeah, bless you. So, man, may God, may God bless us as we fight against the schemes of the devil. So thank you for the hook, Erica, and for at the very end, and there is, it's going to get down to one word as our first step. But as we just start looking at our current state, where we are, and then as we begin to form in our minds the ideal state of where we want to be, and this can be individually, this is where I am, but this is where I would love to be as a child of God. This is where we are as a church, but this is where we would love to be as a church reaching out to our community. This is where we are. So where are we as a nation? Well, I just pulled some slides, and, and so I read a whole bunch of statistics, and I don't want to give all of that necessarily, but let me just give you a few pictures. Here we are. You can see just Christianity in America, what is Protestant, Catholic, and Mormon, just the different forms that uh, 
general, you know, generically around Christianity. This is why they call it the Bible Belt, you know, for those of us that are Protestants. And so, next slide talks about how much pushback do we get from our government? Do we, do we have a, a government that is against religion and Christianity in America? And as you can see, the darker the colors, the more pushback that people have against Christianity and that religion. And it used to be in America that it was white or real light color, but now it's moderate because there is this push in America to remove prayer from schools, to remove God from not just government but businesses, taking down statues, taking away Ten Commandments. And what they're trying to do is say, look, if you want to be religious, that's fine. Keep it in your church and don't speak about the things of God anywhere outside of that. Or we're going to call you names. We're going to label you. We're going to protest. And, and, and so that's, that's all. Because Satan knows all I got to do is just get those Christians to stop talking about their faith. And in one generation, we can wipe that out. So that's just a reflection, you know, of that. In the next slide, it's showing, uh, is it working? And so they took a, a, a survey all over the world. But one of the questions that they ask about in America is two Christians, how important is religion to you? Your faith, how important is your faith to you? And in America, two Christians, only 68% of Christians said that their religion, their faith was important to them. Now, I just find that fascinating. Yeah, I don't mind proclaiming, I don't mind going to church at least a couple of times a year on Easter or maybe Christmas, or I don't mind even going on a regular basis, but when it comes to how I live my everyday life, it's just not that, of, I just don't think about my religion, my walk with God in my everyday life. Now, some of these countries that are under heavy persecution, they say, my faith is everything to me, right? So, in the next slide, this is the growth rate of evangelical Christianity, and, and see, in the United States, it's gold. Evangelical growth is slower than the population growth. The only reason I'm bringing that up, listen, it's, I'm glad that Christianity is growing, and that's not necessarily a slide that says other nations are growing in Christianity more than us, even though that's really true. What it's saying is, is we're not even leading our children to the Lord, that the population of America is growing faster you know, than the rate of Christianity. If we were keeping up with it or if we were being evangelistic, then Christianity would be growing faster than the population. But what he's really saying is, is that in America, we don't really see it as very important to go share our faith. Now, whether we believe that here or not means that you would have to ask yourself, when is the last time you shared your faith with people who are non-believers? so seriously that all you wanted to do was lead them into a relationship with Jesus Christ. I think the next slide is of these two books written by, yeah, by Philip Jenkins, The Next Christendom and The New Faces of Christianity. And I was looking through those books. It really talked about in uh, 1970, 72% of all the Christians in the world were located either in North America or Europe. But in the next 20 years, what he's, he said, if the current trend continues... Then, 83% of Christians in the world will live someplace other than North America or Europe. That in these two places, it's declining. But in Africa, growing unbelievable. In Asia, growing unbelievable. In all these other areas where Christianity is really flourishing. 
It used to be that in America, a lot of us who are older grew up in churches saying, we've got to take Christ into all the world because he's not there. And now the rest of the world is saying, we've got to go take Christ to America because he's not there. Now, it, how does that show itself in our young people? So, guys, here's the slide for you. The percent of unaffiliation, those who are unaffiliated with the church by age. Our teenagers, actually, it looks like it's coming down a little bit, but it's actually going even higher. Because it's saying that those of us who are 80, you know, we really want to be close to God. Now, maybe this graph just shows the older I get, the more important God becomes to me. The closer I get to heaven, the more I want to make sure I'm actually going there. Or maybe it shows that we're not doing a good job leading our teenagers into a relationship with Jesus. And we're letting culture decide. Because I guarantee you, they talk ten times as much about gender fluid than they do about Jesus Christ. They're spending more time talking about, hey, did you know that from now on, you can sign up on your license, and it says male, female, or an X. I'm unsure. And so we've got all kinds of confusion, all because if I can, listen, all, this is all Satan wants to do, rob you of your identity in Christ. And if he can get you to be confused over that, he's got you. It doesn't matter where it leads. And it's working. And so more and more of our teenagers are like, they don't care or they don't want to know. And these teenagers up here, if they were to go to school and they've started and if they were to take a strong stand for God, they're going to be labeled and there's a whole bunch of labels and it's not going to be good. And we're saying... You know, is it the goal to keep from being persecuted, to keep from being laughed at, to keep from being made fun of because of your faith in Jesus? Are we as parents teaching them, listen, when you go to school, just do your math and don't speak at all in the name of Jesus just because I don't want you to have to go through it. Or are we saying, you stand strong in the Lord, he will stand strong in you and let's make a difference. And we'll love you, we'll support you. Right? Because I'm telling you, that... You guys are the future of what happens with Christianity in America. What happens next? It's, it's not me. I'll be long gone. It's, it's you. So, man, where, where are we? Where are we headed? So the last slide, um, I tell you what, take the slide off before everybody can read it. You might have already read it. This one is the one that really grabbed me. The number one religion in every state in, in America is Christianity. What's the number two religion? That slide showed the number two, the second largest religion in every state in America. Go ahead and show it again now, John. Everything in green is Islam. Second largest religion in America. In 1991, I was sitting at the feet of Joseph Shulam, one of the five religious, top religious scholars in our world today. Lives in Israel, conducts Holy Land tours. He did it from the time he was age 14. Became a Christian. 
His parents tore their, their, ripped their clothes, disowned him as a son. He has his, I think, three doctorate degrees. He, uh, he is a rabbi. He's memorized, you know, the first five books of the Bible. He's probably memorized, memorized a lot of the Bible. And in 1991, I was sitting at North Atlanta Church in Atlanta, Georgia, and he came in and he said this, you Christians have no idea how lazy you are when it comes to your faith. Islam has made a decision. In their lifetime, in this generation, they will take over your nation, they will take over your children, and they will stamp out Christianity. And this slide just says they're doing it. Now, maybe we shouldn't care. Maybe we should just, what is our role when it comes to the world? Because they're competing visions. We know what Satan is wanting to do. We know, it's, we know he wants to just destroy anything that is of God and his son, Jesus Christ. Right? But what's our role? And so here is God's vision. In Psalm 96, oh, I'm sorry. Let's look at this. John 14. I have this scripture. John 14. Here's Jesus. I don't have much time to talk to you. He had already set his face toward Jerusalem and he was headed that direction. Because the ruler of this world approaches. Now, it's interesting to me that Jesus called Satan the ruler of this world. He has no power over me, but I will do what the Father requires of me so that the world will know that I love the Father. So Jesus is like, man, the ruler of this world is causing havoc. He's, I'm going to give up my life. He's not going to take it. But Satan is the ruler of this world. And he has free reign right now to do whatever he can do to separate you from the love of God. And so two chapters later in the book of John, he said this about us. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. It's not going to, listen, Jesus told us earlier, if they hated me, don't you think they're going to hate you? If you take a stand for God, and if you're living your life in the name of Jesus Christ, the world is not going to be happy about it. The enemy is not just going to let you go into all the world and take his converts. He will stamp you out. So what's our role? What is it that we're supposed to do? Well, we know that he wants to cause trouble. He's here to kill, steal, and destroy. But God wants to do something different. Now, there's a guy named Claren Arnold. He said this, Although mental assent is given to the likelihood that evil exists, since it's affirmed in the Bible, in reality, it makes no practical difference in the way we live our day-to-day -day lives. What he's saying is this, We don't really talk too much about how Satan is influencing our relationships. What, what he's doing in our world to, to take away our children, to take away our principles and everything. We just, we, we, we look at each other. We argue with our spouse. We argue with our children. We say our next door neighbor, I don't ever, I don't care if I ever speak to them again. And we think that our fight is against each other. And we don't really speak too much about what Satan is doing to destroy us, our marriages relationships, children, our world, our principles. But he's active and he's working. And you have to have your eyes constantly open to what is the enemy doing 
to blind us so that he can rob us of what's important. So God's vision. I love Psalm 96. It's the only one that I'm going to read today about God's vision for the world. Man, the Bible's full of God's vision for the world. But man, this is it. Psalm 96, verse 1. Sing a new song to the Lord. Man, I love that. And I love the fact that right now we're living in a time, and especially with, with Christian music, where there are a lot of new songs. You know, that's just the thing of God. Man, sing a new song. There was a man, we just want to sing the old hymns of the past, but these people who are standing as, in, as Christians now, they want to sing a new song. They want to write new songs, declare new victories in the Lord, and I love it. And then he said, let the whole earth sing to the Lord. Now, that's God's vision. God's vision is that the whole earth will be full of joy and full of song and be lifting up praise. And he continues, sing to the Lord, praise to his name. Each day proclaim the good news that he saves. Publish his glorious deeds among the nations. Tell everyone about the amazing things he does. Great is the Lord. He is most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. The gods of other nations are mere idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty surround him. Strength and beauty fill his sanctuary. O nations of the world, recognize the Lord. Recognize that the Lord is glorious and strong. Give to the Lord the glory he deserves. Bring your offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in all his splendor. Let all the earth tremble before him. Tell the nations, the Lord reigns. The world stands firm and cannot be shaken. He will judge all peoples fairly. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea and everything in it shout his praise. Let the fields and their crops burst out with joy. Let the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he is coming. He's coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with justice and the nations with his truth. God's vision is that the whole world in one voice will glorify him and say thank you. It did not take long when you're reading your Bible. You don't even get six chapters. You don't get three chapters into the Word of God before you see the enemy scheming and trying to rip us apart from God. And the whole rest of the Bible is God's pursuit to get us back. So I want to look at the schemes of the Bible. I want to look at the schemes of Satan. And how he operates. Here's one simple quote from Kale. We do not fall in a moment. Rather, the predisposition to yield to sin has been forming, building, germinating, but not necessarily consciously so. Satan plants subtle stimuli, often subliminal ones. He influences an attitude. He wins a minor victory, always in preparation for the big fall. He's scheming, he's splotting, little by little, by little by little. He's wanting to take you away from God. Imagine like this. And next week, I'm going to be going to uh, North Carolina to watch my son uh, in a triathlon, a mini triathlon. He's so excited, been training, you know, and so I'm just going to go take pictures and, and be, you know, just celebrate with him. But imagine if he were lining up on the starting line, you know, getting ready. Or if you were going to be running in a race, five miles, 
13.1, 26.2, a marathon, whatever it is, you're getting ready to run. And before he says, on your march, get set, before he fires, he says, oh, by the way, all along on this course while you're running, there are going to be people who are on the sidelines hiding behind trees. And they're going to come out and they're going to try to trip you up, push you off the course, knock you down while you run your race. The whole way, be on guard because they're going to be doing everything they can to keep you from finishing the race. It's it. Go. What would that be like? That's what he's saying. That's what the enemy is doing. You're in this race. You're just this marathon of life, just trying to stay faithful to God. But all along the way, you have an enemy trying to trip you up. So what are his schemes? Well, let's look at five of them today. And I'm going to show them to you out of the book of Mark chapter 3, just one simple story. There are other schemes of the devil, but I just want to show you five. Uh, they're in your outline. You can pull the outline out if you want to write. You know, and so here are five. And in this one story, Jesus is tired. He and his apostles, it's not recorded in Mark, but he was up all night. He was praying. He gets up early the next morning. Before daylight, there are people wanting him to heal them. And on this day, Jesus heals as many people as he can. He's just doing everything he can just to serve and meet the needs of all the people. And he finally gets into this house. And, and so we're going to look now at just these seven verses. And out of these seven verses, I want to give you five different tactics of the enemy. So today we're not starting with what is spiritual warfare prayer. We're not even starting, you know, with, uh, with these techniques to overcome. We're just looking at the tactics that the enemy uses to trip us up. Tactic number one, exhaustion. The first, one of the first, you know, and, and these are not in any ranking order, but the first one we're going to talk about today is he just uses exhaustion. He just wears us out. Look at verse 20 in Mark chapter 3. This time Jesus entered this house. And the crowds began to gather again. And soon he and his disciples couldn't even find time to eat. Now Jesus was worn out. And he's like, man, I can't wait to get home. Any of you ever done? I can't wait to get home from work and just sit down. Anyone? Any of you ever been like, I'm so tired. All I wanted, I just want the noise to stop. I, I just, we had somebody who came and laid carpet all down in the back. And, uh, and he had children and he is busy at work, busy at work, busy at work, busy at home, busy at home, busy at home. Kids everywhere, kids everywhere. He came to the back to lay carpet and I said, hey, would you like some music? He goes, oh, no, 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 please. Just let there be silence. Just, please just, just, you know, right? I mean, I just... Can we just rest? I mean, Jesus and his part, they couldn't even find time to eat. Have you ever been there? Where I, all I want is to just be left alone. <laughs> Can you give me five minutes, please? Can you let me just have some peace and quiet? Because the enemy uses exhaustion, wearing you out, wearing you out. Look at Daniel chapter 7, verse 25. Daniel was prophesying about how the enemy was going to come against God's people. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. He just wants to wear you out. Because if I can wear you out, 
then eventually you'll get mad or you'll get frustrated and you'll just give up. I'm done. I don't have any more energy. The thing I hear the most in ministry when people either in their marriages or with their children or whatever is this one word, tired. I'm just tired. I'm tired of fighting it. I'm tired of fighting against it. I'm, tired. I'm just tired of this battle. I just want to quit. And that's, that's one of the tactics of the enemy. And he's not going to stop until he wears you out. That's why God says, if you'll just pray, I will strengthen you. His mercies are new every morning. From the the rise of the sun to the going down of the same, if you'll praise the name of the Lord, he'll give you strength for the day. And, And the enemy will not be able to wear you out. Exhaustion number two, disguise. The enemy tries to dress it all up. Tries to make it look, it's misdirection. Makes you think it's one thing when it's really another. Now in this text, I'm only using this verse of scripture because Jesus' family came in and the Pharisees were there. The Pharisees were trying to kill Jesus. They were looking for a way to plot against him. And, And his family knew it. And so when Jesus came in and he was tired, look at what they said about Jesus. When his family heard of what was happening, they tried to take him away. So they're wanting to do something good. They're wanting to protect him and get him some rest. And so they said, he's out of his mind. <laughs> he's, 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 he's crazy. You, you don't need to worry about him. He's mentally unstable. Now, did they believe it? Did they believe it? Did his family believe it? No. Was it true? No. It's just a misdirection. They're just trying to get that. They're just trying to label it so the Pharisees don't think that what they see is really what's true. They see a man performing miracles. They see so many people running after him that they're threatened. And his family's just trying to take him away. And so they're like, oh, listen, what you see is not what you get. It's just, he's crazy. But see, this is one of the schemes of the enemy. Paul, when he's talking about it in 2 Corinthians 11, says, why, even Satan, even the enemy dresses up as an angel of light. Makes it look so good, so appealing. You can, man, you can go on social media, you can go on dating websites, you can go on Facebook and you look and they can dress it up. And they'll take a picture. If they don't like it, they'll erase it, take a picture, and erase it, take a picture until they get one they like. Filter, 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 filter. And you'll think, whoo, they seem so nice. They seem so polite. They're just like me. There used to be a time when on the Internet it was nice and safe and fun and good, but they call it dark web more than anything now because the web is so full of predators trying to take down everything Rob our children, rob your bank, rob your identity. It's almost like, man, you can't trust anything anymore. That's, that's Satan. He dresses it up. Doesn't it look nice? Doesn't it look, doesn't you look so pretty? He's so sweet. And next thing you know, we get into it. We compromise. And then the truth is revealed. And we're hurt and we're wounded and we're disappointed. How could I have been so stupid? He's just disguising it. And having your eyes open till you say, that's not how the enemy works. Right? And so we, he, he uses disguise, misdirection all the time. Number three, doubt. Now, this is one of the oldest tactics of the enemy, doubt. 
just to get you to doubt in God, his word. And so the Pharisees were trying to create the suspicion around Jesus. They came in. They saw all the good things that he was doing. And so when the teachers came in, verse 22, it says this. The teachers of the religious law who had arrived from Jerusalem said, he's possessed by Satan, the prince of demons. That's where he gets the power to cast out demons. He's not the son of God. He's not the Messiah you're looking for. No, 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 no. That's just a disguise. He's, he's, he's possessed by Satan. He's casting doubt. You can't trust in him. You can't trust in him. Now, this is one of the oldest things that Satan used. In, in Genesis chapter 3, the enemy was just trying to learn how to tempt us away from God. Adam and Eve in, in the garden... Adam named all the animals. They're looking around at all the trees. And here comes Satan. And it says in the form of a serpent. We don't know what that looked like. And apparently, the, the serpent or at that time was majestic and beautiful as an animal. After the fall, we know that he was cursed, turned into a snake. And God said, you'll walk on the, on the belly of on all the rest of your days. And so snakes ever since then have made us like, ugh, you know, oh, right? But when he came against Eve, we don't know what the, the original form was. All we know is that he just started talking to her like it was nothing. And look at chapter 3, verse 1. The serpent was the shrewdest of the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat of the fruit of any of the trees in the garden? Is that what God said, by the way? No, he didn't say you couldn't eat from any tree. He said you couldn't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So he just twisted it just a little bit. But it's that one little phrase. Did God really say, did, he, did God really say that? Meaning, does, does God's wishes trump your wishes? Does does God really have the ultimate authority to issue commands? I mean, I know he said don't have sex before marriage. But come on. Does he really mean that I have to obey that? Does God really have the right to speak his wishes more than what I want. It's just one of the oldest tactics of the enemy to get you to compromise. Well, I know that's what it said, but listen, today, I mean, if God, and it feels so right, we're going to get married anyway, and I just, I mean, compromise, 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 compromise. Does God really have the power to transform a life? See, the enemy is trying to get you to see and run after anything else but God. And he'll dress it up and he'll make it look pretty and he'll cause you to doubt. And if he can turn your desires into something other than God's commands, he's got you. And you'll suffer for it later. I promise. Doubt. Number four, isolation. This is why small groups are so important. In the next verse, 
you know, Jesus calls it out. So verses 24 through 26, he says this. Jesus called them over and responded with an illustration. How can Satan cast out Satan? That just doesn't make sense. He asked, a kingdom divided by civil war will collapse. Similarly, a family splintered by feuding will fall apart. And if Satan is divided and fights against himself, how can he stand? He would never survive. And so what he's saying is, what, what, and one of the enemy's tactics is to isolate you, to splinter, to separate, to break apart families. He, if he can break apart all families in America, he can, he'll take our children. If he can split families, right? That's all he's trying to do is get us in isolation. Get you away from everybody else. You see, that's what they do in Africa with lions, and they're going after. They'll do a whole herd, and they'll get them running, 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 as fast as they can. Turn them in a direction, hoping that one of the little, one of the little youngest animals will either wear out quickly or turn the wrong way. All the herd turns one way, and then they'll turn the other, and then they've got them. That's the enemy. Split you, separate them, get them apart, then we can wound them. Now, in marriages, you know, we're being given caution this by Paul over in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He's like, in a marriage, the two of you need to come together and you need to be intimate with each other. And by intimate, it means everything that I believe that he means by being intimate. He's sexual intimacy. Except you both agree for a time of prayer in which you can focus on your, your relationship and your closeness with God. But then he said, but then you come back quickly. Come back together quickly. Lest Satan or the enemy tempt you and you lose for lack of self-control. See, in isolation, you'll make poor decisions. Nobody's watching. Nobody's watching. Nobody's here. Nobody sees me. Nobody cares. Isolation. Fall. Right? It's just an old tactic. Right? You're not, you're not the enemy. There is an enemy trying to take you down. Right? Number five. Strongholds. And this is the last one. Strongholds. In verse 27, Jesus is like, man, you get, here's another illustration just to give you the same thing. Let me illustrate this further. Who is powerful enough to enter a house of a strong man like Satan and plunder his goods? Only someone even stronger, someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house. Now, now Jesus is saying, look, I can tie up, bind up Satan, and then I can rip from him all those people who really belong to God. But this is also a tactic of the enemy. He can come at you, and if he can overwhelm you, if he can tie you up, in bad habits, in addictions, in poor decisions, in a painful past. And he can tie you up with fears and keep you in isolation. He will rip you apart. And so that's just a tactic of the enemy. To gain something strong over you. Now he's not omnipotent. He doesn't know all things. And so his demons are just studying you. And if you speak it, man, I have a bad problem with this. As soon as you say it, they know it. And what do you think you're going to get more of? Until it becomes a stronghold, an addiction, 
and you begin to feel like you're weak and can't overcome it. And so now, finally, what's one thing we can do? And our sermon's over. One thing we can do. One final step. So first final step to overcoming, just to put the blank up there. There it is. Now, this is what Erica was referring to when she said, there's one word that he's going to land on, and it might not be the word that you think. Because in first service, what I did is I said, what is our first step to overcoming? What is it? And everybody said in first service, prayer. <laughs> because this is the 21 days of prayer. And I said, that would have been a really good word. I probably should have put it in my sermon, but that's not what I was thinking about. Because there's something that often keeps, for people who struggle with prayer, for people who struggle with humbling themselves before God, there's something that keeps us back. There's one thing that the enemy uses that keeps us from really go ahead and show it John who said unforgiveness it's just it's a big one and listen the enemy has done a lot to take us away from God right he's gone after you gone after you gone after used other people to come after you Next thing you know, we begin to see each other as the enemy. And we have, we have a real struggle staying unified and married to and in family with and in community with each other. So Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, I wish you'd just start in verse 1, said that there was this guy who came into their church and was just ripping people apart. He was just sowing discontent. He just caused all kind of problems. And they eventually had to tell that guy he was not invited into their assembly. And they took care of the issue. And then this is what Paul wrote him and said. Now, however, it's time to forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, he may be overcome by discouragement. So I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. He's like, the time of fighting against that is over. And if you can't forgive him, the enemy's going to win. You don't want the enemy to win. And then look how he tied it to Satan and our eyes opened to Satan. In verse 10, and when I forgive, whatever needs to be forgiven. And it doesn't really matter what the issue was. When I forgive, whatever needs to be forgiven, I do so with Christ's authority for your benefit so that Satan will not outsmart us for we are familiar with his evil schemes. Man, I pray that when you look in your life and, and, you, and you wonder what is keeping me from really feeling blessed and free, What Paul is saying is often it starts with unforgiveness. He's like, let it go and restore back the one who needs forgiveness. Offer it up in prayer. Humble yourself and repent and submit. And God will lift you up and your eyes will be clear on the schemes of the evil.